And we serve an amazing God that, uh, you know, in the midst of our, of our differences, in the midst of, of, of our uh, different cultures and different upbringings, um, it, is, it is Jesus that unites us and brings us together. Last weekend, uh, Keith and I had the opportunity and, and, and our families uh, to worship together with CMC at the Multiply Conference. I know some of you were there, and it was a really, really good uh, weekend, uh, some good things happening in CMC. Keith, by the way, uh, preached on Sunday morning, and I really believe he hit it out of the park, preached an incredible message about sharing the gospel, and uh, so just some good things, um, but it's always good to be here. It's always good to be at home with with my church family and you know, I was reminded of just all the work that, uh, things that go on around here uh, last week of just all the stuff happening on Friday. You know, I came here early. I used to get here about 7 or 7.30. There was already people here barbecuing chicken. And uh, there were 2,500 chicken meals made by a whole bunch of people that gathered here all during the day on Friday to make chicken and to pack lunches and to deliver them out to other people and and for the purpose of sending young people to the mission field for nine months with the REACH program. And then just seeing the people on, on Saturday coming here to support and to uh, do cooking and cleaning and, and work for Kelly Slaybaugh's funeral. It's really good to see a church that's engaged and that supports each other. And you know, as you think about Chet and his uh, family in the weeks ahead, just pray for them as he processes the loss of, of his spouse. Uh, so do pray for them. We are in, in Mark chapter 12 in this series called Encounters with Jesus. And this morning we will see uh, an encounter that a religious leader had with Jesus. And if you remember, Mark um, is writing about the Messiah, and in the first eight chapters through verse 28 of Mark, of Mark 8, he's answering the question of who is Jesus? And he does that by reporting on lots of miracles and, and that Jesus did. And then uh, right in the middle of Mark, uh, from, from Mark chapter 8, verse 28 to chapter 10, Mark talks to us about what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. And right in the middle, there's this question that, that Jesus asks. And he says, who do you say that I am? And then we see here in the last part of, of Mark from chapters 11 to 16, we will, we will see Mark answering the question. He explains how Jesus became the Messianic King. And, you know, where our text this morning finds us in, verse, in chapter 12, about three days into Jesus' final week. Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem. I remember on Sunday he came into Jerusalem uh, riding on a donkey and, and all of, or most of Jerusalem worshiping him as the future Messiah, hailing him as, as king. And Monday, he uh, goes into the temple and, and, and clears the temple. And, and by this time, by the end of Monday, the religious leaders, uh, if they weren't already ticked, they are, it says, looking for a way 
to kill him. It says in, in Mark chapter eight, uh, chapter 11, verse 18, it says, The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this, and they began looking for a way to kill him. Because they feared him, it says, and because others were amazed at his teaching. So these religious leaders get their heads together and, and these experts of the law and try to come up with a plan on how they would take Jesus down. And so they thought, well, we are the experts in the law. Uh, we are the smartest people in the land. And so we will, we're going to outsmart Jesus. And we're going to show people once and for all that he isn't who he said he was. And so they begin to question him. And it says in Mark eleven twenty eight that they ask, well, what authority are you doing these things? And, and who gave you authority to do this? And Jesus, in his fashion, responds by asking a question about John the Baptist. Where did John get his authority? And nobody could answer him. And, and so in chapter 12, we see the religious experts, the leaders of the law, uh, send their best and their brightest to question Jesus. You know, they question him about taxes. They say, do we pay taxes? And Jesus says, bring me a coin. And, and he brings a coin. He says, both, he says, pay to Caesar what is Caesar and pay to God what is God. And it says that the, the Sadducees and the, the, the leaders of the law, it says, were, were amazed at his response. And so the Sadducees take their shot and they ask about the resurrection and and Jesus answers that again with insight and wisdom, and it says he leaves them stunned, and they're speechless. And so by this time, where we get to uh, Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 28, um, they really hadn't gained any ground in, in their approach. In fact, they had probably uh, helped Jesus to, to really to showcase his brilliance. And that he really is the Messiah. And so it was counterproductive to, to what they were trying to accomplish. And, and so after all these questions, Matthew says that, that hearing that he had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. So they got, they got together to devise this plan, maybe to formulate one last question on how they could trap Jesus. Because whenever it says that they tested Jesus, really what, what it's saying is they were trying to trap him, try to get him to answer wrong. And so in uh, chapter 12 and verse 28, this leader who maybe he was prepped by, the, by this group that had gotten together, but it says that one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked Jesus, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. The response of, the, of, the, of this uh, scribe is, Well said, teacher. 
You are right in saying that God is one and that there is no other but Him and to love Him with all your heart and with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that the man answered wisely, he said, you are not far from the kingdom. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. Father, would you open our eyes to see what you have for us today in your word. It's in Christ's name I pray, amen. Something we're going to do this morning is a couple of different spots. We're going to stop. I'm going to give you time to process what I'm talking about. One of the things I'm going to ask you to process is, is what does it mean for me to love Jesus with all of my heart and all of my soul and all of my mind and all of my strength? And Dan, I'm going to ask you, we're going to talk about, we're going to, we're going to process what does it mean to love my neighbor? So here in Mark chapter 12, verse 28, we see this guy that comes to Jesus, and, and this is one guy that I think is, is somewhat honest. It seems like, like he came to find out about Jesus for himself. You know, he had heard, it says that he'd heard all of the other arguments and all of the other stuff that the questions that had been asked and the answers that Jesus had given. But he comes with a different kind of question. He asks this question of all the commandments, which is the most important? Now, to understand why I asked this question, this, 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 this question was the stuff that, that daily discussions were made of by religious leaders. So if you read the, the, the Mishnah and the Talmud, which are, which are Jewish writings, you find that the rabbis were always arguing about which were the most important laws that, that they were to hold. So now, in Jewish law, there were, there were 613 laws. And the 613 laws were, were 613 because there are 613 Hebrew letters in the Ten Commandments. So rabbis thought, well, if there's 613 letters in the Ten Commandments, then we need 613 laws. There were 248 positive laws and 365 negative laws, one for every day of the year. And so what they would continually ask themselves is, which one of these is the most important? How, how will we, and so they argued and debated these questions day in and day out, which is the most important law? And how will I follow? Because that's what gave them energy. You know, I had to I ask myself, is that what we do? Do we love to debate what the most important laws are, what the most important things are for us to follow? Do we, you know, in our groups of people, in our ABFs, in our community groups, and just in our everyday life together, argue about these things and think that that's what religion is made of, it's just debating? what is most important to God, but never really living out the things we talk about because that's what, that's what the religious leaders, they debated these things, but, but it never really made a difference in their lives. 
And so Jesus, hearing this response and knowing um, this whole system, he says, the most important one, this is Jesus' response, the most important one is to hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second one is to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, Jesus is brilliant in, in his answer because what Jesus does is he quotes the Shema, which is the most important scripture in, for, for any Jew, and it's found in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verses 4 to 9, where, where it says that, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commands I give to you today are you, are, you are to put upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. You see, a, a, a good Jewish person was to, was to recite these verses every morning and every night. Shema means hear or listen. But in the Hebrew, here means much more than just taking in something. It means doing what you hear. In other words, there's supposed to be action with hearing. So the Shema says, we are not just to hear this, we're to do this. We're to love the Lord our God with, with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our strength. So what does it mean to love God with, with all of my heart? You see, the heart in the Hebrew, the understanding was that is the core of your identity. That is the core of my being. So, so I am to love God with the deepest, purest, truest part of me, with all of myself. And my soul is my emotion. That's the emotional part of me. You know, the Bible says that Jesus, when he was agonizing in the garden, he says, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful. And so, so we're to love God with all of ourselves, with all of our emotion, with all of our minds, then it says. Our minds are, refers to our ideas and viewpoints and perspectives on life and we're to submit our minds. You know, Romans says we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. So we're to love God with all of our hearts. We're to love God with all of our emotion and with all of our mind. And then he says with all of our strength. Our abilities, our talents, our physical powers. We're to surrender those to the glory of God. We are to love God with every fiber of our being, with every aspect of our lives. Every part of us is to be focused on the majesty and essence of God. It's to be all of who I am. And when I begin to love God in that way, with all of my heart, my being, with all of my emotion, 
with all of my mind and all of my strength, then out of me will flow this desire to love my neighbor. But it begins with this whole thing of loving God with all of me. And so when you think about this last week, what did that look like? How did you love God with, your, with all of yourself? How did you love God with, with your mind? Because we're transformed by the renewing of our minds. How much time did you spend fostering your relationship with this holy God? And I want you to get your pens out, and I want, to get, want you to get paper out, and I want you to, to take a couple minutes and just answer this question. What does it look like for me to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? What does that look like for me this week? You know, let's forget if we didn't get it right last week. And, and look, we're, we're never going to get it completely right. But, but as I look forward to, to, to Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, August 6th through the 12th, what is it going to look like for me to love God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength? What's your strategy going to be? Write some things down. Or get your phone out and write some things on your phone. Now, what I want you to do with this is, not right now, but at some point during the day today, I want you to talk to somebody about this. If you're married, talk to your spouse about this. Um, if you're a child that lives at home, talk to your parents about this. Talk to a friend about, how am I going to do this? And make yourself accountable to somebody. Just to give me a call, hey, how are you doing this week? How are you doing? Because accountability is really important. But this whole thing of, of loving God, Jesus said... This is the most important thing you will do. Basically what he says, look, forget those 613 laws that you guys always argue about. Forget about all the other stuff. He says, I want you to focus on loving God. First and foremost. He says, and then, and then, I want you to love your neighbor as yourself. Because he says, there is no commandment greater than these. And, and the thing that we have to remember, is this is things that these, these people already knew because they knew what Leviticus said. In Leviticus 19, 18, he says, don't seek revenge or bear grudge against anyone. Love your neighbor as yourself. So they knew these things. They knew these things and Jesus is saying, look, those laws, quit arguing about those. And he, he boils it all down to two things, loving God and loving your neighbor. 
Basically, he takes the Ten Commandments and boils them down because the Ten Commandments are boiled down into these two things. The first four commandments in the Ten Commandments are about loving God. The last six are about loving your neighbor, loving mankind, loving the people around you. So he boils it down and said, everything hangs on these two, it says in Luke. Everything hangs on these two hang the, law, the laws and the prophets. First John says, If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. So Jesus said, love God, and now love your neighbor. And he says, if you, if you love God, you will love your neighbor. And, and, and the teacher that, that questioned Jesus in verse 32, he says, you are right in saying that God is one and that there is no one other but him, to love him with all your heart and with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than burnt offerings or sacrifice. So we say, look, for us, that's loving God and loving your neighbor is more important than anything else you do. It's more important than coming to church. It's more important than giving the offering. It's more important than, than, than all of these, all of our exercises, which they're important, but he says, loving God and loving your neighbor, that's where you need to focus on. Now, this wasn't the first time that Jesus had responded to a similar type of question or answer. Turn with me to Luke chapter 10, verse 25. Luke chapter 10, and in Luke chapter 10, this is a story of the Good Samaritan, a story that many of us have heard growing up, a story of, of, of the Good Samaritan. But, but similar situation, Jesus was sitting and doing teaching, and it says in verse 25, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. There's that word again, to try to trap Jesus. And he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And then Jesus just simply asked him another question. He says, well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? Listen to the response of the religious leaders. So they understood this principle. He says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and to love your neighbor as yourself. This was an expert in the law that answered this question. He says, he did exactly what Jesus quotes later. And Jesus says, you have answered correctly. Do this and live. So Jesus said, do you want to inherit eternal life? Love God and love your neighbor. Now, there was a little phrase in there that really um, caught my attention, that really um, kind of bothered me. In verse 29, he says, so Jesus tells a religious leader, do these things and you will live. It says, but he wanted to justify himself. And he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And, and 
I ask myself the question, do I try to justify myself in, 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 in defining who my neighbor is so that I can boil it down to just a few people that I like, that I want to help, that I want to be with? I think what this man was trying to do and what we often try to do was he was trying to get around loving his neighbor. He was asking the question, how can I gain eternal life without sacrificing? What is the bare minimum that I have to do? How many of us approach our faith like that? What is the bare minimum I have to do to get into heaven? Like, what is the least that I have to do? How can I just squeak in? Because I think that's often our attitude. I think for me, that's something that, that, that I wrestle with. I try to justify my need to care for people around me, to care for my neighbor who I don't know, or maybe who I don't even like. Who is my neighbor? If remember, Jesus responds with, with a parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan, and he, he defines who our neighbor is. You see, for in the Old Testament, they're a lot like us. You know, their neighbor were the people that were like them, people that were like-minded. We don't mind caring for people that are like us. What the parable of the Good Samaritan does, it says, look, Everybody is my neighbor. It doesn't matter what they look like, smell like, act like, believe like. They are my neighbor, and when they have a need, I must care for them. It doesn't matter who they are. If you remember the story of the Good Samaritan... The story of a man who was beaten by robbers and left along the side of the road to die. And as he's laying there, the Bible says that, that a priest was walking by and, and saw, the, the Samar- saw the guy laying on the side of the ditch and, and he walks to the other side of the road and ignores the man who was laying there bleeding and beaten. That says a Levite. These were good religious people. These were people that went to church every week. That says Levite walked by and sees the man laying by the road, and he passes on the other side and pretends like he doesn't see him because he had somewhere to go. He had things to do and people to see. Then it says a Samaritan came, and, 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 and for the Jew, they, they hated the Samaritans. The Samaritans were less than the least of these. And it says a Samaritan came. One of the least of these people came, and he took note, and it says he took compassion on this man. Put him on his donkey, took him to a hotel, paid the hotel manager money, and said, take care of him. If you need more money, I'll be back. 
The good Samaritan showed mercy. With no regard to the man's background, his religion, or, or, or potential benefits that he could reap from taking him to a hotel. Is that the way that I look at people? And, and, and what does loving my neighbor look like? What does it really look like for me to love my neighbor? If everybody is my neighbor, and that means everybody in Apple Creek and Mount Eden and Holmesville and everywhere, they're all my neighbors. And so when I see a need, what am I supposed to do? And what if they're not like me? And what if I never get anything in return for doing this for them? Who is my neighbor? And what does it look like for me to love my neighbor? What does loving my neighbor look like? First of all, this type of love is compassionate. It says that the Samaritan took pity on, or your translations may say, took compassion on. He saw this man that was bleeding, who was in need, and it says he took compassion on him. He went towards the injured man, responded to his needs, rather than simply saying, man, I really feel sorry for that guy. And how often do I catch myself looking at a situation in the world or in community, I, I see a need and I say, that just really bothers, that just really hurts my heart. And yet, I, like the Levite and like the priest, because I'm sure they looked at this man and they, it's like, oh man, it's, I really feel bad for him. Who were the bad people that did this? But they kept walking. Because, you see, they didn't really have compassion because, because compassion causes us to act. Real compassion causes us to act. And so this Levi, this, or this, this Samaritan, his compassion caused an action. You see, love is compassionate. Love is proactive. I'm sure this Samaritan, he was on his way to somewhere. He had things to do and people to see, just like the priest and the Levite did, but he stopped because he saw this man in need. And I think in this fast-paced world that we live in, we've got places to take our kids, we've got meetings to go to, we've got activities to go to, we've got this and this and this and this. We don't have time to meet people's needs. And sometimes I think we feel good just because we felt some compassion, even though we never did anything about it. See, that's not loving my neighbor. That's, that's not, and, and look, man, I am guilty. But, the, but this love, loving my neighbor is proactive. 
And, and when I am loving God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength, then when I see needs, first of all, when I am living in relationship with God like that, when my mind is being transformed as I read the word and as I pray, I am more sensitive to the Holy Spirit. I'm more sensitive to the voice of the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit speaks to me, then I act. When was the last time you felt the Holy Spirit speaking to you? Inviting you into something that God is up to. Because as we press into God, as we press into that relationship, the power of the Holy Spirit becomes alive in us and we become sensitive and, and then we become proactive when we feel compassion. Loving our neighbor is compassionate, it is proactive, and it is sacrificial. Yes, it will cost us. It costs the Samaritan time and money and energy to pick this guy up off the ground and to take him to a hotel. Love is sacrificial. Yet one of our most valuable resources is our time, and, and loving my neighbor costs me time. God has given every one of us resources. As Keith said a little bit earlier, we are very affluent. God has blessed us with resources so that we can care for the people around us and the needs that exist. He's given us things so that we can give back. And we are to be sacrificial and it comes out of my love for Jesus. You see, being sacrificial in my giving of my time, my talents, my treasures, and all of that isn't natural. What's natural is me taking everything I have and holding on to it really tightly. But as we engage God in, in, in a relationship with him and the Holy Spirit convicts us, as the Holy Spirit fills us that hold on stuff begins to loosen. And we recognize that this isn't my stuff. This is stuff that I'm stewarding for God. And when we are connected to a holy God with all of ourselves, we will be compassionate, we will be proactive, we will be sacrificial, and this love is merciful. It is merciful. John MacArthur says that mercy is seeing a man without food and giving him food. It is seeing a person begging for love and giving him love. Mercy is seeing someone lonely and giving them company. Mercy is meeting the need, not just feeling do you get that? It's meeting a need. It's being proactive. It's acting on our compassion and doing something. That's mercy. 
The good Samaritan showed mercy when he saw the need. He could have walked by, but he felt compassion and he acted on it because compassion is mercy in action. And you know, mercy is the action that God took when he looked down at humanity and saw our lostness. And he felt compassion on his people, on us. And his compassion for us caused him to act. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. His compassion. He saw all of us laying in a ditch and bleeding. And because of his mercy, chose to do something about our needy situation. It says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. It says, whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And 1 John 4, 19 says, and we love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. We show compassion because he first showed compassion on us. We are proactive because he was proactive with us. We show mercy because he showed mercy to us. First John 3:16. Says this is how we know what love is. Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone, anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need and has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, Dear Fairlawn Mennonite Church, let us not love with words or tongue, but with action and truth. That's really what God desires from us. That our love for people would, 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 would go beyond these walls so that when there is a tornado in Dayton, Ohio, we have a group of people that say, you know what, we're going to go there. Because there's a need. Those are our neighbors. When there's a flood in Apple Creek. And by the way, last Saturday we had an incredible response to, to go and help. 
But maybe you have a neighbor who has a different need. Maybe you have a neighbor that's lonely and just needs a friend. Maybe you have a neighbor that's struggling with their children and just needs somebody to come alongside them. Maybe it's babysitting their children. I want us to close this morning, these last few minutes. I'm asking you two questions that I want you to answer. First of all, what are the things that move you to compassion? What are the things that break your heart? You know, I see Rose Raber there holding their little, little guy. You know, Mark and Rose felt compassion for orphans. And they did something about now, man, you know, they're not old, but, but to have a three-month-old at their age is hard work. They felt compassion. So what, what moves you to compassion? And then what, what act of mercy could accompany that feeling? In other words, this this thing that's burning in your heart when you see it what can I do about that let's take a couple minutes first of all what makes me compassionate when do I feel compassion and then what can I do about it Take some time. Dear fathers, we, uh, as we think on these things, I pray that by the power of, of the Holy Spirit living in us, that we would just take steps to clear space to pursue a passionate relationship with you. One that transforms our, our heart, soul, our minds. And our actions. And Holy Spirit, as you come and you fill us and you change us. Help us to have eyes to see the needs around us. Oh, Spirit, as, as we see needs around us, break our hearts to the point of, of taking action. Oh, Spirit, empower us to love our neighbors. First of all, to see the need of our neighbors. Inspire us to, to bless them, to be Jesus to them. And that we 
wouldn't get so bogged down in in stuff. Lord, we'd be able to strip everything away and recognize that our relationship with you begins by loving you, by pursuing you. And then out of the overflow of that, we would serve you and make you attractive. It's in Christ's name I pray.